Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Andrew Howard. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Our show is sponsored by Shutterstock, which is holding a sketch contest for a chance to win a trip to Cannes Lions in 2016. Sketch what you love and share it on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag ShutterstockSketch by October 30th. To learn more, go to Shutterstock.com slash contests slash sketch. So I'm speaking to you today from Portugal, where I've been teaching for two weeks at the Porto Design Summer School. Michael Beirut, my co-host, is still on the other side of the world, so my co-host today is Andrew Howard, who runs the Porto Design Summer School. Thanks for joining me today, Andrew. Thanks, Jessica. It's great to be here. We're sitting in Andrew's really beautiful studio here in Porto. You may hear some street noise because the windows are open. Uh, it's a lovely Sunday afternoon in Porto with church bells and other kinds of beautiful things going on in the quiet streets. We'll talk more about Porto in a moment and what we've been doing here, but first we thought we'd talk about Pluto and the pictures that have started coming back from New Horizons, the probe that was launched more than nine years ago. Hal Weaver, a New Horizons principal scientist, told the New York Times, Right now we're going to transform this little pixelated blob into a real world with complexity and diversity and who knows what. Andrew, what did you think about these pictures? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with those images and I'm, I'm always keeping track of uh, new stuff that's coming out. And, and I think it's, it's partly to do with the idea of exploring new territories, having new visions, I have this memory of when I was a kid sitting with my father looking at an atlas of the world and, and looking at a double page spread, looking at the world and fascinated by all the different terrains, the mountains and the rivers and the places. And I turned to my father and I asked him um, with a degree of anticipation, but what's on the other side? And of course he explained to me, well Andrew, there isn't anything on the other side because you're looking at the plan of the world. And I was really disappointed that there weren't new territories to explore. So that's why space, I think, has a great fascination for me. But these images are great. It's just a shame, in a way, that the NASA website maybe is... Not as great as the images should be. Absolutely I, I not. think I agree with you. The best coverage, I think, was the coverage that came out of the New York Times. They've got some wonderful short videos. We'll put a link on our site to one of them uh, that shows interviews with the principal scientists and investigators at Caltech and at NASA. Uh, and I th think that they really uh, explain in no uncertain terms why this is important, how long it's taken to come about, uh, the, the engineering, which is of course mind-boggling to probably even people in the sciences, but, but visually they, they were able to actually make this film that, that um, showed, among other things, they interview all these, I just have to say this, all these really sort of serious looking scientists, and then one guy who's the visualization lead uh, who looks like he's, you know, playing backup for some uh, heavy metal band, but who's extremely articulate and has a lot of long hair and jewelry. Um, but he's extremely articulate about the, the complexity of, of visualizing something that um, that's really so impossible to share. Also, the other thing I found really touching was the fact that uh, both the NASA website, which is very poorly designed, I agree, uh, and the Times coverage and, and Wired's coverage, uh, among others, show the pixelized images of the first glimpse of Pluto. So you're mm. looking at this thing that could be a blob of chewing gum on the sidewalk. Absolutely. But they felt a need to share this, and I thought there was something very humbling about the fact that we're being asked to look at something that looks 
as complicated as it in fact is and took so long to transmit to Earth, but we're also looking at a pixelized blob. Mm. Did you see those images? I did, yeah. But the final images are absolutely beautiful, aren't they? They're absolutely beautiful, and we're now finding out about, about craters and about crevices in the land. Um, and it's just something so marvelous about the fact that, that we're all waiting for visual evidence. But you said that you talked about this strange thing when we were talking during the week about how people were complaining that, that this probe that took 10 years to get to Pluto, and they were complaining about the fact that they couldn't get the images quicker. I want to come back from Pluto to the planet Portugal, which I love to call the planet Portugal because it is such a different place here. Uh, I have been coming now, I think this is my sixth or seventh trip to Porto. <clears throat> The last three summers, we've had the Porto Design Summer School. Andrew, you live here all the time. Um, can you talk a little bit about how long you've been here and what it is that Porto means to you and, and how you've started the school? Well, I've been here for, what, nearly 22 years now. Um, wasn't something I planned, it just happened. But it's been a very interesting time. I mean, the thing about Portugal is that it's an interesting country, but it's actually not on the way to anywhere. It's actually at the end of Europe. You don't go through Portugal to anywhere. And so I think being here as a designer and being, you know, wanting to be connected to an international world, you have to make a real effort. And so over these years, I've made a big effort to bring people in to the country and, and to give talks, lots of designers. And the summer school is just a continuing part of that process. To our listeners who don't know about Portugal, it is an amazing destination, Porto especially, and a, a, just an incredible place, affordable, beautiful, interesting. Uh, there's ocean, there's city, there's river, there's history, there's unbelievable typography, some of which uh, we've been posting on the summer school site and, and on our Facebook pages. But it's true that, Andrew, um, you brought in all these interesting people, that, that you did a lecture series, you've done exhibitions, you've done books, you've really made um, a life for yourself here that's very rich, and education is just one part of that. Could you talk for a minute, before we talk about the summer school, about the program that you started, the master's program at the school here, and why you started it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a new program uh, here at, at the school in which I teach, and I was asked to put together a program about five years ago, and I'd stopped teaching for a while, and it was a nice opportunity to, to come back into teaching. But it was really about trying to think uh, a more advanced um, program about, about design and asking some really basic questions about what it means to be a graphic designer, what sort of skills and abilities you need. So it's very much about taking a process apart, bit by bit, reassembling it, trying to understand how it functions, what, what makes it tick, why we take the decisions we do, what informs us. So that's really what the program's about. I have to say, too, that um, we didn't set out uh, to make the Porto Summer Design Program an international program. But now that I look at your MA students here at ESAD, the school where you have started this program, and I was fortunate to be able to come last October when I was living in Paris and do a workshop with those students, I was very impressed with how international they were as a group. And it's, it gets at this question of design as a kind of international language, that it's not just about teaching in English or not just about having cultural references that come from your own kind of myopic world. But I was, I was impressed by those students. And, and I have to say, to, to move on to, to our course that we've just finished uh, teaching, and to our listeners who are familiar with this program, if I sound tired, Andrew's even more tired. This is, we had 19 students in two weeks. 
uh, from, I think, 12 different countries? Yes, 12, 13 different countries. Can you talk maybe uh, about the program as you saw it and how you think it's starting to develop uh, against the backdrop of the city? Well, I think the big difference between uh, the MA and a course like this is that the students we get on, on the MA, on, on any university course, tend to be the same age tend to come from more or less the same sort of background. And what makes this different is that we've got people who aren't just from lots of different countries, but they're also different ages, different backgrounds, different experiences. So like you say, we had, I think the youngest was 20, and the oldest was something like 46, 46 something yeah. like that. So you're having this group of people who are starting from different places, and we managed to steer them well, it's not just us that steers them, they steer themselves, the context steers them to a common exit point. Mm. And it's different for all of them, because they all have their own personal journeys to discovery. But the, the exit point is really interesting, because they all come together. They all come together and they meet, they have a huge influence, I think, on each other's work, on, it, on each other's process, and each other's way of thinking. Uh, this year we had a student from Bombay, we had a student from Bogota, uh, and I talked to both of them last night as we were finishing the course about the challenges they face professionally in their countries, both are women. Uh, some people, we had a student this year who was Korean, who was raised in, in Athens, Greece. Talk a little bit, if you would, about uh, George Hardy and Hamish Muir, the other tutors who came this year. I mean, I think all four of us got very different approaches, and that, that makes it great for the students because we, have, we share a lot of values, a lot of ideas, but very different approaches. So Hamish, for instance, has a very meticulous approach to his work. Right? Um, it, it, it's unfair to say that he's you know, simply a maker. And in a way, it's, it's sometimes used uh, in, in, a, in a negative way. But I think what we all argue on the course is that thinking and making are different ways of doing the same thing. Mm -hmm that it's not a question of thinking, thinking, and then making, but that it's a reflective process. And making is another way of thinking, because as soon as you do something, uh, you begin to think about it. George Hardy, on the other hand, is, is um, I suppose if I had to ca characterize George's work, it would be slow design. Right. Because there's this very subtle, and it's very British in lots of ways, but, but very subtle, underplayed observation. and he would describe, I think he does describe his own approach as a sort of interrogation, a visual interrogation of objects uh, and how they work, how we understand them. And that's a, that's, a, that's a lovely thing. There is a deep humility, and of course a great sense of humor in his work, but a deep humility. If you're interrogating objects, you're also interrogating your suppositions about those objects and about what they mean, how they function, what their role is in your work. I share with George uh, a sort of indefatigable love, as I think you share with us also, of um, going to flea markets and antique stores. Uh, and I had just a marvelous week where in our spare moments, he and I would take to the streets. And there was one great moment yesterday where we're walking through the Porto flea market. And he sees on the ground a bucket of kind of disemboweled pieces of a chandelier. And he says, I'm seeing these everywhere. And, and of course, the minute he said that, we saw them in three or four places. And he said, don't you think it would be interesting for someone to take up a collection of those bits and bobs, as he put it, and make a brand new chandelier according to a completely new logic? And so the idea that he would see these things, this trash, this detritus of the day, and with this wit and humor, and I think that's what, I think, over two weeks, this intensive experience in a place like this, 
brings to people. And, and I think you can't do that in every city, because this city is unusually modern in places, classic in places, inspired by other parts of, of, of the country and of the seaside and of the climate, the things that grow here. So can you, for, for our listeners who haven't visited Porto, can you talk a little bit about some of the sort of visual things that are inspiring? I know that the students, for example, are very interested in the tile. I know that the cobblestone streets are interesting. But are there, are there things? Talk about the typography and, and the typography here in your studio. I'm sitting here in Andrew's studio with these, these wonderful found things. He's got a great story, which will you share the story about the printer? The, print, the, the, the guy throwing the stuff out that you had an hour to recover? That happens in lots of places, unfortunately. But I bring a lot of people over here who live in, in sort of northern European cities, and one of the remarks they make is how much independent commerce still exists. There's a lack of chain shops. And so because of that, there's still a lot of you know, what we would call vernacular signage, although it's, unfortunately it's, it's, it's disappearing uh, quite quickly. But it's strange because we were talking last night about the students. During, during this, this last two weeks, we, we, saw, we were joking with each other about certain cliches about the city. And one of them is tiles, about railings. And there's also, of course, the seagulls, which seem to make a lot of noise everywhere. But we were asking yesterday, do you really notice the tiles? Is that something really important for you? And they were saying, yeah, it's really, really important because they, they don't exist anywhere else. So we were talking, actually, weren't we, about making a, a, asking the students next year to go through the city, notice everything that's, that struck them, and then asking them not to include any of those things in their work. Right. We could try to eliminate all the cliches. The inventory cliches. of cliches. Absolutely. Right. You've been teaching for a while here in Portugal. You've lived here for a long time. Uh, for many people, that would be quite enough running a practice and uh, running an MA program. What was it that made you realize that there was an opportunity to do a summer school? And maybe even more to the point, what was it that led your decision to focus that summer school, now this third summer and, and hopefully for many more to come, on editorial design? Well, maybe I can talk at a tangent here, um, which is that, I mean, you know, I'm living in a place which uh, a lot of people think is quite exotic. So there's there's a number of questions that come up all the time. You know, one of them is about why I moved here to Portugal, which I'm really not interested in talking about very much. But there's the other question that people often ask is, what is design like in Portugal? And what's interesting is that it's actually very global. So when people ask me that, I think, well, actually, it's not that different from design anywhere else. And that's because going back to what we were talking about earlier, about the sort of globalization of things, that the references tend to be the same. You know, McDonald's are everywhere, <clears throat> the, 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 the TV shows are pretty much the same everywhere, the music is everywhere. And so we have, you know, students coming from Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, India. They have, of course, their own references. But there's a lot of common references, so they know what the references are within the design world. But it's the, the idea about people ask as if, you know, that somehow there is this thing called Portuguese design, which has a very particular characteristic to it. Um, like in the way people talked about there was Dutch design or English design. It's very difficult to distinguish between all of them. Yeah, and I think that's a good thing, actually. I think it's a very good thing. Um, but I think also that in the United States, when I tell people that I am coming to Portugal to teach, 
they are sometimes surprised that I'm not going to the Netherlands or England to teach, that I don't think that people realize, and I can say this having been here now numerous times, thanks to your generous invitations, that this is a really interesting place to practice design. But you're slightly different in that respect, aren't you, because of your own background and, and your experience in Europe, in France, in Italy. So, you know, do you think you have a typical view of, of uh, American view of, of what design might be like? No, I always say that if I'm hit by a bus tomorrow, I'd like one of the things that people remember about me, you know, besides my incredible generosity of spirit and humility, is that um, I wanted to get out of Dodge. And it doesn't mean I don't love my house and my garden and my friends and, and, and the United States and the school where I teach. But I think that it is such an opportunity. Being a designer is such a chance to be an ambassador for ideas. Uh, and, and it's such a chance to kind of get out of your own way. And part of getting out of your own way, we tend to think it's just a formal conversation, like stop repeating yourself, design something different, you know, don't repeat the kinds of conventions that drive you through a project. But I think it's about opening your eyes. And to your point, standing in the same place and digging deeper isn't necessarily standing in the same physical location. It's standing with an idea. It's the books you read, it's the authors you follow, it's the music that interests you, it's the conversations you have. So one of the great things about traveling and being a designer, and, and I love doing them together. I mean, I'm, I have a, had a real vision um, in, in the last few years that I wanted my life to be more international, particularly because I've taught at the same school for many years, and I went to that school, and I think that's kind of boring. Um, but also, the minute you come to a place like this, you realize, and this, this program, which I'm really proud of, have been a being a part of these past few years. I don't think there's any other summer program that's quite this international. So that conversation, this one we're having right now, about how your world can open up because of travel is, I think, something that more designers need to pay attention to. Um, I think the other point is that we're all professional educators. It's not what we do all the time, but right. we've, we've been doing it for a long time. And within the institutional education system, it's the same in the UK, it's the same here in Portugal, that it begins to feel like a real grind, a bit of a factory. And I think that's the opportunity of trying to set up something outside of that system, mm -hmm. which has a different perspective, which doesn't... I mean, it's not that we don't assess people's work, but there's more of a, a continuing discussion. Is this a reaction to your own design education, do you think, too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So can you talk about that for a minute? Well, I'm not sure if it's wise, but I yeah, could. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, what's weird is that I don't have any academic qualifications at all, so officially I am completely unqualified. Well, it doesn't seem to have stood in your way. Well, maybe it's because of that I've made an extra effort in a way. And I think one of the things that, I, that made my time at, at university difficult, and I was asked to leave, actually, was that... Um, I was just full of questions, and I think young people are full of questions. All my students, they want information, they want to know things, they want to know practical things. And the sorts of questions I was asking when I was at university just weren't being answered. I felt the same way when I was at university, isn't that interesting? I mean, I did a major in graphic design and architectural theory back in the 80s because there was no theory in design. And now, of course, we have theory in design, and it's one of the reasons I love teaching, because the questions they ask aren't always about design. They're about other sort of philosophical things. And you read a lot. I mean, you, you, you know, you're, I think, the projects you give your students and the questions you're always asking leads into the kinds of things you, you give them to do. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier, I mean, one of the things that I think we've all picked up on and we all share is this idea of staying in the same place and digging deep, deeper. 
but we're surrounded by so much stuff. And you can see it in the students, they're completely flitting around from one thing to another. And it, it links back to what George does in a way, in that there is this idea that the most amazing things are in the stars above our heads, going back to the space thing. Right. But in fact, most of them actually are beneath our feet. And it's about that careful observation. It's, it's not even about telling new, wonderful, exciting narratives, but actually retelling the narratives that we're all familiar with, but in very different ways. You know, which goes into this whole thing about form being fundamental in the process of graphic design, that if you remember a piece of work, you don't really remember it simply because it's about X or Y, but because of how or why it's about X or Y. So we're, you know, we're constantly telling the same stories, retelling them, but telling them with a freshness, which means looking at what's around you every day, things that we take for granted, things that we are so used to seeing that we, we don't even notice them anymore. And that's the wonderful thing about George in particular, but I think all of us, is asking students to understand what it is they have in front of them, because that's where the work is going to come from. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode of Design Observer is sponsored by our friends at Shutterstock which is holding a sketch contest for a chance to win a trip to Cannes Lions 2016. I'll be one of the judges. Sketch what you love and share it on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag ShutterstockSketch by October 30th. To learn more, go to Shutterstock.com slash contests slash sketch. So on the subject of editorial design, I wondered if we could talk for a moment about books. You design a lot of books. You love books. You read books. I've just come off judging the 50 Books 50 cover show. You, of course, uh, design books all the time in your practice. Uh, how do you think our students did this year? They did very well. I mean, lots of different levels, different experience. I mean, it's interesting, for instance, we had one student who was actually an interior designer. Had never made a book before. Absolutely not. In fact, there were a few that had never made a book. Yeah, she was really interesting because we, we led her to not feel that her lack of typographic knowledge, for example, was any kind of impediment, but to approach the book as a set of spaces. Mm. And she did quite well. I mean, she, she really, her way into that book and her beginning of a way of understanding grids and their relationships to typography was really quite fascinating. Yeah, just to take the contents of the book and treat them as raw materials and laying them out, just looking at the formal qualities, it was a very nice process for her. And we give them text, two different texts to work with, and for some people this is really an opportunity to shape a narrative, as you say, and for others it's really, uh, uh, and for many designers working with, with a text, and its meaning and understanding how that can be articulated through sequence and typography is difficult. We had some, some unusual examples this year, including a student who had such a fascination with tiles that she worked her way into a factory and made one. Absolutely, which is something that I wouldn't normally have, have welcomed. I don't like those sorts of gimmicks in books, but for her it was great because it ended up as a very interesting object, and it was a great process for her, and it narrowed down her choices. Many people who do not teach think that teaching is a fixed thing, that we do it, there's a curriculum, there's a pedagogic value system, uh, they're in, they're out, they get a grade, right? This is not what we do. This is not what this course is. And I think what's, uh, what's particularly um, useful for us is that we, we come back to this, we think about how to refine it, but it also affects our ongoing teaching and writing and practice. 
So the thing about design education it, it, that we all, the, the four of us that, that are on this course have discussed this, that we all teach and do something else. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, uh, it, it levels the playing field quite a bit. I think they realize that they too may someday teach, that we are looking at how the profession is changing, how the world is changing, and how we might migrate our findings and developments into different kinds of things. I mean, we certainly speak from a position of experience. We're older than they are. We've been teaching a long time. But, but I think that it, it, it has to continue to evolve as the world does and as, as their needs do and as books do and as editorial outcomes must. Mm, and I think it's for me and I think for the rest of us it's really about arguing that our professional practice is part of an ongoing life project, it's part of other things and that's very important for them I think. And I, I mean some years ago for instance I stopped teaching for, I took a break for about five years even though I remained in contact with the school, I was organizing the Personal Views series, for instance, but the reason I stopped was I'd reached a point where I felt I was simply repeating myself. I wasn't learning anything. And I think as an edu educator, you, you know, if you reach that point where you're not learning anything and you're just regurgitating stuff, then you need to take a break. And if you have to take a break, you should do it in Porto. That's why I come every summer. Absolutely. There you go. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed today, including the Porto Design Summer School here in Portugal. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something or someone you want to hear from next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. We'd like to thank Shutterstock for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Thanks, Andrew. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Jessica. And see you next year.